Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching No Time to Die. James Bond has left active service. His peace is short-lived when Felix Leiter, an old friend from the CIA, turns up asking for help, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. That's right, it's Bond 25, parentheses 27. Yes, we're finally covering this movie that we have been waiting almost two years to talk about. So long. Yes, so long. Um, Yeah, so we wanted to wait till the movie had been out for a little bit and was starting to be available for purchase and rental on streaming services before we put out our opinions about it. But we definitely saw it right away in October. Massive spoiler alerts right now. If you haven't seen it, Big stuff happens, and if you're a fan of Bond and you don't want to get spoiled, you should just turn this off and wait until you've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw that out right now. Yeah, yeah. Because Bond is dead? <laughs> yep, and so are like so are a lot of other people. That's a big fucking deal. That's a big deal. It is. Um, They've killed Bond before. It's fine. Well... Technically, they've killed Bond before. True, but it was fake out. It's fine. <laughs> but they still did it. Yeah. Like, Felix Leiter's dead. Felix is gone. Yeah. They are, for the first time, positioning this as a full-on franchise and universe. Yes. Which, to be fair to them, wasn't a conceivable movie thing in the past. That conceit didn't exist. And now, with the way movies are and the way franchises have been reestablished, especially with the MCU, I am going to credit the MCU with all of that, like with this and thinking, oh, we can close this chapter with this actor and say, this is done and still bring new life to our franchise. They don't exist in separate worlds. We're allowed to think that they're all one story, but this is where this version of the story is ending and we're allowed to start a new later. I am somewhat sensitive to the criticism that comes up with things like the MCU. Sure. Oh, sometimes. Oh, of course. That really boils down to, hey, why can't we just make some original shit? And so my, my thing being that I still really love the Marvel movies. Exactly. But I also am like, I kind of wish that, you know, we would also make some better time and energy for things that were completely new stories. However, Mm -hmm. with this specifically, we're dealing with the franchise. Mm -hmm. And up until now, they as a franchise have simply just said, well, we just have to keep doing this character. It's a a tradition that we've sort of gone along with, and it's the way we've done things. I I think what's so significant about this movie is that it says, we're ready to step away from that tradition. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a big deal for Bond. Yeah, no, they were like, let's tie up loose ends. Let's let's end some things. Let's let's do that. Let's not leave things vague and people can build their own thing. Let's actually make some decisions and finish some things, which was great. I think like my biggest disappointment was like that we didn't find like we don't know who the next Bond is. (laughs) They didn't make that passing of the torch a part of this this film about part of this narrative which is fine it didn't have to i wish they had because that's never been done they have it with the nomi character 
to a degree. Like they, they firmly make it clear that it's just a number that's assigned to an agent. Like you don't own 007. You're just the last person who had it. But do you own James Bond? And that's, I mean, the credits say at the end, we didn't stay through, but they do say at the very end, James James Bond Bond will return, return. which is fine. And I would have loved to see that now in the next iteration of the franchise, they might do that. That might be how they start it, which would be great to see. Uh, And that's fine. And this is going to be your name. Oh, because this is a very Jason Bourne type thing, which Jason Bourne's totally spent to be a James Bond American version. It's fine. But yeah, I overall really liked it. I got very emotional during that, which I was not expecting. Like, I know I've said like some of the bonds have made me cry, but I was not expecting truly. I was not expecting to be like, it's over. Like I like it. It really did. It's like, it's over. Because we've been connected to this franchise for nearly two years. I mean, true. I just, I didn't expect myself to be this emotionally invested. I knew I would enjoy it. I knew I would like it, but I did not expect to be that emotional. And it was over silly things too. It wasn't just him dying. It was over the references that I caught. It was over like just these, just these little tiny moments. And I'm just like, I'm so happy. Like it was, (laughs) it was one of those. I, I did not expect it. It's just odd to talk about. It's odd Mm -hmm. to talk about in the firmament of this franchise because it's such a different thing. Sure. I got to say, it's messy. It's a little messy. It is a little messy. I'm not happy with the Rami Malek character. It's not not Rami Malek who's doing a fantastic job. It's just the writing of the villain got so paper thin after a while. It did, and its connection to... Madeline just also felt so like, really? Like, why do I care? There's a lot. And there's there's probably some opportunities they could have gone with. But I don't know that we're going to talk about because this this kind of went through development hell before we even hit COVID. This movie went through development hell. Sure. And so it wound up just being a little bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. What's really awesome about this movie is that despite it being messy it feels like it ends in a good spot it feels like it at the at the end of the movie after the total experience sure you feel satisfied even though there's a bunch of things in there that you go i don't know if we really needed that (laughs) sure sure so i would not put it in my top pantheon of bond movies no i wouldn't either like i'm not gonna launch this with the casino royale and skyfall not with it is not in the bottom by any means I would put it probably just outside my top 10. Yeah, I was about to say like maybe. in an 11, 12 spot, maybe. Something like that. Because it's very good. And I also want to like really get like they did something different that we have never seen in the Bond in the Bond franchise. It's going to take a while to sit with this one. It might we might change our opinion as we watch it more. <laughs> oh, sure. Because, you know, it just depends on our mood some days. Like, which one is this? Is my 1A, 1B situations? You're just yeah. like, today I'm feeling more this, but tomorrow I might feel more this. We'll, we'll have to revisit it, and we'll, I'm sure we're going to have many more chances. Uh, I hope so. The budget for this film was $250 million. Based on the original price tag of Dr. No at $1 million, mm-hmm. it now costs 250 times more. We're officially there. Mm-hmm. It could have cost far more. 
supposedly that there was a tax incentive to get UK movies filming in UK studios Mm -hmm. during this time. And that saved them about 47 million pounds or $63 million, which is bonkers. That is bonkers. At the time of writing the notes of this, um, which I wrote probably a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. gross for the film was $150 million. The total global gross was $710 million. Now, it is still showing in a smattering of theaters that could update and change a little bit. But based on some of the advanced numbers and things, and this is a really interesting like money finance thing, mm-hmm. this film could wind up not breaking even. With $66 million committed to advertising before COVID shutdown, mm-hmm. and then a possible total of $100 million total committed, it's thought that to fully break even on every single thing that they spent on this movie, mm-hmm. it would have to make $600 to $800 million. Wow. Just to break even for all of the different stuff this movie had to go through, all of the development, mm-hmm. and then the shutdown and how to advertise it and keeping the time slots. Now, however, they did also note that if they had kept the slot for it mm-hmm. and just put it in movie theaters as soon as they could in the middle of the shutdown, yeah. it would have lost about $300 million. Wow. It would have been a nightmare. The franchise could have just destroyed entirely. Well, it's it's interesting to have that analysis now since movie theaters are mostly open everywhere. That's interesting. It's a lot of different things and it's nobody's fault. At the end of the day, it's not going to be a failure. It's it's really not. No. It's just it's how quickly you make your money back. It's not going to be the massive success that we've seen from something like a Skyfall, which was just a gigantic win for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they kept upping the, the gross on how much these movies would gross. And this time it's like, we will probably break even, get a little bit out of it. But the rules changed completely. Oh, yeah. And to make things even weirder, the movie that showed at the same time and ate into its profits as the Bond franchise is Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Venom did better mm-hmm. box office wise because a younger audience went to see it. Yeah. Bond is, from a US standpoint, from a global standpoint, it's still hugely popular. It's such a British sure. and international movie. From a US standpoint, it's become a much older franchise. It is. And I think that is largely to do now with the casting. And this is no offense to any of our wonderful James Bonds, but I believe a younger audience is not as likely to go and watch all the Daniel Craig films unless they already think Daniel Craig is really cool. Whereas if we had a slightly younger Bond who maybe had been in another franchise or had another movie that had blown up they would be more willing to go and do that and come see a new Bond. Because I I still am firmly believe that our next Bond needs to be early 30s. Like, <laughs> you, you cannot cast another late 30s, 40s Bond. You just can't if you're going to revitalize this franchise and make it new and relevant for a new audience to want to go through the 15, 20 years with one Bond and th- wants to go look at all of the old ones now because they enjoy the new ones so much you have to start with someone younger who's willing to go on that journey 
I mean, maybe the other thing I, that you hear from lots of younger people is that uh -huh. Bond as a character just has no appeal to them whatsoever. The Daniel Craig version is a big exception to that. Sure. Because it is a much different setup. And the way that they set up even his roughest times as a character, his mm -hmm. most misogynist times with Casino Royale. Sure. It's set up in the proper context of who Bond is. Yes. And then is developed over time. But like people see Bond as a character is like, why would we root for the most posh man who just kills people and overthrows governments for the British Empire? Like that that's a big thing for a lot of people with Bond. And so you have to it's something thinking in the future that story-wise they need to think about. Mm -hmm. Because how are you going to take that character and make it to where people are far more interested? Mm -hmm. And, you know, is, is MI6 the best place for Bond anymore? Do we want to find a new way to, to have him do this stuff? I don't know. It's, it's an interesting point. In the interim of the pandemic and delays, there were reports swirling that MGM was open to selling off the Bond franchise nuts it, because they were looking at a potential they nobody because, knew yeah. nobody knew what was going on so like how much money are we gonna lose do we mm -hmm. need to get rid of this sure they were looking for about 600 million dollars and there were two streaming services who apparently balked at the price sure its value is worth 600 million let's be very clear oh yeah and they're going if we sell this it's going to be at a premium Oh, absolutely. It's like, you ain't getting us for cheap. Yeah. Because the potential is high. No, absolutely. Most of the reports didn't name names, but based on the fact that it was two highly known streaming services, it was pretty much considered that it was Netflix and Apple. Yeah, I, I could have seen Apple going for it. I, Netflix would never have bought this. MGM denied this all throughout the process, mm -hmm. uh, saying that it wasn't for sale. It had been held only for the theatrical release. They said they specifically were not going to do this until they could put it in theaters. Mm -hmm. And adding to that was the notion that both Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson would have had to sign off on that deal. There. Which was a huge sticking point in any potential negotiation. MGM probably would have been a lot more willing to entertain offers if they didn't also have a family producing team behind it. Yeah. And the CEO for the parent group of MGM would have had to lead the sale. It was such a big deal that like the highest of high brass at MGM Studios would have had to actually sit down and negotiate it. Hmm. That's how massive a deal it would have been. But because they were facing potential losses of 30 to $50 million because of all the different delays, both before and after COVID, mm -hmm. you know, the reports swirled and I'm sure people leaked that information to to be like, you know, they're they're at least talking about it. Huh. Interesting. I totally get talking about it. Oh, sure. Like you're in a business, you talk about shit like that, especially if you're looking down the barrel of a gun like that. Oh, yeah. But I think it very quickly became clear to them that it was like, hell no. <laughs> It is allegedly the only film in history to shut down nearly 160 movie theaters because of the lacks of box office return in its delayed release. Wow. Again, that's hard to just like blame on Bond, but it is a fascinating thing. It was like this movie is such a big deal that a certain number of movie theaters just had to shut down completely because they couldn't get this movie show. <laughs> well, yeah, because this would have been their big 
film at that time and they were counting on releases and once there's no releases they can't do anything i think what's what's really cool about this movie from a historical standpoint from a movie business standpoint Mm -hmm. is that it's going to be a benchmark and studied from the business standpoint because it's the first big franchise back yes like it really is spider-man no way home is going to also be a big benchmark Mm mm-hmm hey how far back are we where are we sitting business-wise in this and, mm-hmm. and looking at that stuff and you know we've talked about it's a big deal not just for these big franchise movies it's a big deal for every movie because that money does flow down in this industry yes it really does it's one of the few industries where it really flows down to filmmakers mm-hmm. so this one's going to be looked at for a long time Some other fun trivia with the production. The launch for the film took place at Goldeneye in Jamaica, Mm -hmm. in Fleming's old house. They did not do it in England like they typically do. Yep. Goldeneye was never used for shooting, but many of the creative team and cast stayed there for the launch event and while they filmed in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And of particular note is that both actresses Naomi Harris and Lashana Lynch are of Jamaican descent. Very cool. Which brings that connection. Not to mention that Dr. No is prominently set in Jamaica, which really pulls some things full circle from a story standpoint. Yes. This is the longest Bond film by 13 minutes. It's nearly three hours. It is also the longest pre-credit sequence in Bond history. Yeah. 24 minutes. The titles and theme actually show up in the second reel of the film. I remember like I kind of like that's one of those things you heard about going into it. And then I remember watching it and being like, wow, this is taking a while. It goes on for a long time. Bond's not in that. No. It has nothing to do with him at that point. Well, okay, Bond has the second half of the pre-open because then we have the whole Italian car chase. Sure. But it goes on for a long time. The previous record, of course, was held by the chase through the thames in the world is not enough mm-hmm. which is still one of the most bonkers stunt sequences you'll ever That's see very cool it's awesome it's great that movie meh the stunts wow super fine <laughs> i mean still nothing beats the human chase of casino royale because yes. every every bond film has to start with a chase of some sort and they did it but they used no vehicles it was parkour, yeah. and it was amazing, and I was just like, I'm here for this shit. There's, there's been many good ones. That's definitely up there. It's a top five. Top five films, yeah. Well, no, that, that chase scene is a top five. Of all time? Yeah. Yeah, oh, of yeah. all time. Very well Of done. any movie ever is a top <laughs> five for me. And finally, at 79 years old, this very well could be the final film produced by our longtime Bond writer, and producer Michael G. Wilson. And I think that is also the reason why they chose to tie up things and really put a bookend at this point because it's the 25th film, like a sanctioned film. It's Michael G. Wilson's likely last last film. <laughs> and the Broccoli children are going to have to bring other people in to take over because we don't i mean i don't know how old they are but they're not young it's either designated to another family member or it's time to start finding a successor exactly so this 
is like the culmination of everything we've all done together. Yeah. Which is great. And I, I think that's that was a smart thing to do at this point with looking towards the future. I think Barbara's going to still be attached for a little while, but I think it, it seems as though Barbara's intent is to, as they work on the franchise, begin to figure out that succession plan as they sure. go along as well. That's going to be very interesting. But at the Royal World premiere, Barbara Broccoli did get on the microphone and specifically thank her half-brother for all of his contributions to the franchise. Since Roger Moore came in, he has been a fucking rock for these movies. Mm-hmm. He's saved the franchise several times. Yep. Like, we've talked about it. And they haven't all been good movies, but he made nope. sure they made money. They made their money, and that was the most important thing for MGM. And they kept it alive. Like, yeah. he he did a magnificent job. <laughs> and, you know, he gave us The Spy Who Loved Me. We can't really complain about that. We do really like that one. That's I know. Sexy Roger Moore Bond. Sexy Roger Moore Bond. Yeah. Sexy good. Navy Captain Bond. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into our writing. Mm-hmm. We have a number of writers involved here. Yep. First of all, we have Ian Fleming. Of course, we have to talk about him every time. <laughs> but for our story and screenplay, they're back yet again. It's Neil Purvis and Robert mm-hmm. Wade. Of course, they've been writing these screenplays since The World Is Not Enough. They have worked on every single Bond film. They are, at this point, the first run guys they get the first run at the story they're going to put it together it might be rough but they're the ones designated for that yeah they're the story guys that's fine and i will always fun note that they co-wrote johnny english which is amazing which i i feel like is just that we need to let off some james bond steam let's do a bunch of let's make a spy do stupid shit but they also did a recent mini series about world war ii spies called Mm. ssgb See, now we have to go watch that. Along with all the Johnny English. From all I can tell, that World War II series is a very low-tech type of spy show. Cool. So it's a very different kind of spy thing, which sounds really interesting. I'm all over that. Then, with story and screenplay, we have Kerry Joji Fukunaga. Before this, he wrote Sin Nombre, Beasts of No Nation, 2017's It, The Alienist for Television, and Maniac for Television. Okay. Then, also with a screenplay credit, we have Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Before this, she wrote the television series Crashing, the television series Fleabag, and the television series Killing Eve. Then we have a couple of uncredited writers. Mm -hmm. Scott Z. Burns did a rewrite, but was not credited because only four writers are allowed per new WGA rules for actual credit for the film. Okay. He wrote The Bourne Ultimatum, The Informant, Contagion, Side Effects, and The Laundromat. So he's worked a lot with Soderbergh, but also wrote a Bourne movie. Cool. And we have Paul Haggis Mm. reportedly had a hand on this one. Of course, he co-wrote Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. Mm -hmm. So he's done this before. There was a lot of different writing going on. Some of this has to do with previous iterations which will really come into focus when we talk about directing but it went through a couple of different versions Mm -hmm. fukunaga's really the person who got the final say on the script from everything i've seen well i've seen that and then a lot of talk about phoebe waller bridge because of the female perspective that she brought and i mean she is 
if you have not seen any of her work, you need to. You, it's a breath of fresh air while being devastatingly funny. Um, she is amazing. So when I heard that she was gonna take a pass at this, I was like, hell fucking yes. Now I actually want to bring something up here. Mm-hmm. First of all, she was brought in late yes. in the writing process. Mm-hmm. Fukunaga had the big part of the script. Yes. But she was actually brought in during some of our director turmoil. Yes. Very late in the process. And all of the rumors and all of the talk was, well, she's being brought in to bring a female perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some lesser people would say, oh, they're just trying to be woke and be gender inclusive. Daniel Craig denied this directly. Yes. He insists he invited her mm-hmm. because he thinks she's such a great writer. And actually said it had nothing to do with the fact that she was bringing a female perspective. He just loved her writing so much. He wanted her to punch up dialogue and sharpen the story. No, exactly. I mean, she brings a female perspective as a woman in the world. Of course. But first and foremost, her writing is the fucking shit. And the fact that our goddamn hero, Daniel Craig, went to them and said, as the producer, hey, bring her in. She's really fucking good. Well, and I think that's also some people really, I mean, they tried to get a lot of clickbait out of him saying that he doesn't think a woman should play Bond, but you lose that the reason he says like, because women should be given characters that are amazing on their own, Mm -hmm. which is, I totally agree. I I just think that we should also have a female Bond. I mean, we we should be able to allow a woman to play James Bond. Let's just do it. Like, come on. I don't care. Let's make it happen. Why can't, why not both? Why not both, Daniel? True. But like, he's absolutely right. And so he's definitely not a misogynistic Bond and he does not play a misogynistic Bond. Does he like women? Yes. Does he like to fuck? Also, yes. You can be those two things without being misogynistic. Even in his most misogynistic moments, you have a clear motivation of why and it's bitterness. Oh, yeah. It's horrible bitterness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Woo. So yeah, it's very fascinating because he went like, no. No, I brought her in specifically to make this better (laughs) because I didn't like the way the script was headed. Way way to use your uh, producer clout. Mm -hmm. What do we think about the writing of this film? We have already talked about the villain is very thin. The villain needs a rework. Like you can keep the framework that you want, but you need to make the stakes higher earlier. He should have been Dr. No. Like, there's no reason he shouldn't have been Dr. No. Well, I understand why he's not officially Dr. No. But they should have made the references to that more overt. And also, if he had been related to the official Dr. No, that would have added another layer of the betrayal. And you could have made it. Then it makes him going after Bond's family because he has a family in this film. Uh, He's not really aware of that, but that's true. Makes those stakes like, oh, so I killed your father, your grandfather, so now you're going to go after my family? Okay, great. Well, and and in the books, actually in the movie, Dr. No is a main rival of Blofeld. Yes. Which is a huge thing to play with. I think that may be the other thing that's missing is that we only get one scene Mm -hmm. where Safin is very much fighting against Blofeld. Sure. There should have been more Blofeld. There should have been more Blofeld. Well, Blofeld, because the thing is, the whole idea was that we weren't supposed to know that Blofeld was still alive. Of course. 
which is fine. I'm fine with that. I love Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz is Blofeld. Amazing. I, I want him all the time. I just love Christoph Waltz. That should have been more of a threat. It's, it's a lingering thing that only drives our villain closer. And then if the villain shows that he's even more horrible than Blofeld. Yeah. Is able to get to Blofeld and then be like, I'm more dangerous than him. Yes. That immediately raises our stakes. Sure. But instead, he just feels like a rehash of a bunch of other villains that we've had. He's ultimately just a Dosas Machia. Like, that's all he is. At the point that you've made him, there's no excuse for you not just making him Dr. No. Because you kind of just did it anyway. <laughs> you did it without doing it. And that's where those of us who have gone through the entire Bond journey are a little annoyed. Because it's like, you needed to go all in and make more of those connections. So like, he, you don't have to call, he doesn't have to call himself Dr. No. That's no. fine. But like, I know the mask is considered a no mask. And like, there's all these things and layers. Yeah. And so it's just like, then make the official connections to that character. If you don't want to call him that character, that's fine. We'd be cool with that. So like, that's my biggest issue. Like, I love the stuff. I love the stuff with Nomi, just in general, like the competition, Ana de Armas's character, perfection. Oh, Paloma's so Paloma fun. Paloma is probably my favorite, my favorite Bond girl ever because specifically, and I know this is jumping before we get to our cast, she plays it as it's my first day. And uh, she kind of plays it like she's a dumb agent. That bitch is not on her first day. That girl knows every fucking thing she's supposed to be doing. This is part of her persona as Paloma. I fucking love it. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. how it's played in my eyes. And she's badass. And I love her. Our whole thing coming out of it was like, Paloma should be the new Felix Leiter. Please, God. She should. I would love her to be the new Leiter. And she's like, well, it's Paloma, but whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> that would be amazing. It's just, it's so fun. I like the story beats of, you know, Felix Leiter dying and that it was like, that's Bond's only friend. Only one he's ever had. It's the only friend he's ever had. And it hurts. And you can see the hurt on his face when he has to leave him. And Felix is like, it's fine. Like, this is what's supposed to happen. Like, it's it's just, it's a beautiful friendship. I love that. Love Jeffrey Wright. So I'm on board with that. That was beautiful. And then the family. The family stuff, which was like, you just, you knew that was going to be the case. I wasn't ready for that. I was not expecting it. Oh, the second I, I expected it. I was like, it's been, once we knew how long it had been, I was like, she is a kid. I didn't expect that because they, because again, it's the first time they've ever done that. Totally. I turned off the Bond part of my brain and turned on the TV film brain. It was like, this was happening. Um, and they did it, which is great. And then they made it, they like Bond as a parent is very funny. Like, what were we expecting? I don't know, another kid. Like, <laughs> like the, the quippiness of the jokes were great. And probably by far my favorite thing in the entire fucking movie is Q. Yeah. Q is the best Q has ever been. In the most adorable way. And so help me God, Broccoli's. If you do not bring him back for your next franchise, I will riot. Assuming the actor wants to do it. But so help me God, you bring that man back. Because that would be perfect. And I would also honor the fact that we had the same cue for so long. We'll discuss that. Okay. 
but it better happen or I riot. Also, they made him like just incidentally gay, which I also love. So fun. So adorable. So adorable. Like, I never get what I want. (laughs) I'm going to be alone forever. Prepare yourself for disappointment. No! Um, (laughs) I hate you. I hate you. I quit everything now. This is the first Bond movie since License to Kill to include Q, Lighter, Money Penny, and M all in the same, same movie. They don't do it very often. I know. Craig noted that there were four different versions of the script in development of this film. Okay. So I'm thinking Purvis and Wade obviously did the first. Burns and Haggis both did a version. And the last one is Fukunaga and Waller-Bridge. Yeah. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge really being a... I'm going to take what you've got. We're going to make it really work as best we can. Which uh, you, I can feel. And oh, they do yeah. it very well. Like the dialogue's very well done. With the exception of the villain stuff. That's a whole other problem. Well, it, that's just because the character is so thin that no dialogue you can give him is really going to work that well. Everything else works great. Yeah. Uh, Fukunaga stated that the opening of Stefan chasing young Madeline was actually a chance to rework his concept of it. Oh. He was like, I took what I had done there and said, maybe I can do it here this time, Hmm. (laughs) which I thought was interesting. M's line from the end of the movie is a paraphrase of a Jack London quote, Hmm. the London's credo. The same quote appears alongside Bond's obituary, in quotes, in Fleming's novel, You Only Live Twice. While many believe that the newcomer writers were responsible for killing off Bond, and some people are very upset about that. Mm -hmm. I get it. I get it. People get a little too attached to Bond. I do. And they don't want the idea that he can die. But according to Scott Burns, that was in the original script by Purvis and Wade and approved by the Broccoli's and Michael Wilson. This was always the plan for this movie. I like it. That's, That's a good plan. Yeah. Like, it's time to do it for real. It's time to try it just for once. Now we get to some similarities. This always comes up with these movies Mm -hmm. that they're pulling from previous Bonds. Much was made of the similarities to Dr. No. Mm -hmm. We've got the setting in Jamaica. We've got a rival to Blofeld. We've got lots of incidental stuff. But in fact, it's pulling from some different sources. Okay. First of all, The Poison Garden is a bit more faithful recreation of the Garden of Death from You Only Live Twice, the novel. If you'll recall, Donald Pleasance's version is a little more hokey, psychedelic-y. But in this one, it's much different. Then we have a really interesting pull. For your eyes only. Yep. It's the 40th anniversary of that film. Mm Mm-hmm. Coming out now. There are some very interesting parallels, not like direct necessarily, but there's some interesting stuff. The name of one of the shipping vessels in Jamaica that we see is the Fort St. George. The spy trawler in For Your Eyes Only was the St. George. Oh, okay. The seaplane stunt where we fly through the port cranes is very similar to our climactic helicopter stunt in the gas works during For Your Eyes Only. Okay. Hell of a helicopter scene. One of the best ones they've done. Yeah. And Paloma is Spanish for Dove, the nickname of Milos Colombo, a.k.a. Topo, and for your eyes only. (laughs) But the biggest inspiration comes from one of our sneaky favorite Bond movies. Mm -hmm. 
on Her Majesty's Secret, Secret Service. Service. The similarities are so fascinating, and they are really pulling from here more than any source. I knew that, okay, because I am a hardcore on Her Majesty's Secret Service fan. I know. That is that is my 1A, 1B situation with Casino Royale. <laughs> like, it depends on my day, but that's one of my fucking favorites. I fucking love that movie. And I remember watching like, this is Secret Service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember this. I remember this from this. This. Mwah! Love it. First of all, it's the only time they've set in Norway mm-hmm. directly since Majesty's Secret Service. Uh-huh. You have the development of a biological weapon disrupting life on Earth. Yep. You have Bond's connection to a woman he loves with a reversal in this story. Uh-huh. He sacrifices himself Self for versus her. Losing, losing her. her. Correct. The ski lift. Mm-hmm. The ski lift situation. We have composer Hans Zimmer pulling inspiration for his score, not from just the Bond theme, which they mm-hmm. all do, sure. but he, directly he says the main theme to on her majesty's secret service was a huge inspiration to him which i mean come on that's fucking han zimmer all day yeah big (laughs) big brass he loves his big brass but that's something big to know we do i do have that later han zimmer is doing the score yeah this is a new person doing a score for bond yeah i love it though this is not our typical guy because it has to be extra dramatic. And if you need really extra dramatic, Hans Zimmer is who you call. And finally, maybe the biggest one, all the time in the world was included both as music during the end credits, Louis Armstrong's version plays, uh-huh. and dialogue for the film. Yes. And that's the big one. Mm-hmm. We have all the time in the world. When he said that, I just rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, come on. Fukunaga admitted he had never seen On Her Majesty's Secret Service. He is apparently a huge Bond fan, but he had never seen that movie. It's okay. It's okay. Like, it's the best one. I know. I know. And after seeing the new film, George Lazenby, who is still with us, still kicking it, Mm -hmm. was quoted on Twitter as saying, hmm, interesting choices of music, I must say. He's a cheeky bastard. (laughs) He's so cheeky. Love it. Oh. I love him. He, he's loving how much people love his bond. He was real bitter for a while, but now in his old age, he's loving it. He's also incredibly happy with the choice he made. Sure. Like short term felt like a terrible decision. Long term, he's like, I'm so much happier. I didn't try to do that for the rest of my life. Fine. Like it's, <laughs> it's gonna be his peace with it, but it was a bad decision. It was a bad decision. It was a bad decision, but I'll forgive him for being a cheeky bastard now. <laughs> Now we have a who could have been better. Okay. And this ties to our director. Sure. The writer John Hodge, who is an early collaborator with director Danny Boyle, mm-hmm. wrote Train Spotting, A Life Less Ordinary, The Beach, and more recently, the Lance Armstrong movie The Program, featuring Ben Foster. Nope. That was a situation of I'm bringing my guy along to help do a draft of this. No, which I get it. I but... totally understand. And there's no shade in having somebody come along to do a draft, but. No, I get it. But still, no. No. And what title could have been better? Oh. Because this comes up on James Bond sometimes. Yeah. At one point, the title was rumored to be Shatterhand. Now, okay. this is a very obscure novel reference. Yes. Shatterhand is an alias of Blofeld. Oh, okay. Which would have tied more into the Blofeld-Safin rivalry. Sure. But because he's the f- not the focus of the film, it never really made sense as a uh-huh. potential title. More obvious, and maybe too obvious, was 
A Reason to Die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was felt to not be Bond enough, which, yes. And also pretty much gives away the ending of the film. Yeah. Which is like, nah, nah. No. And that leads us to our director. Okay. Hey, we just talked about him. We did. Carrie Joji Fukunaga. Before this, he directed Sin Nombre, 2011's Jane Eyre, True Detective Season 1, Beasts of No Nation, and Maniac for television. What do we think of Carrie Fukunaga's directing of this film? We're big fans of his. We loved True Detective Season 1. We also still like Season 2. We haven't watched Season 3. But Season 1 is impeccable. I mean, it is it is a uh, case study in how to build a show, uh, a suspenseful show, honestly. I do like his direction because I feel like the times where you expect Bond to go big, they go big. You know, the car chases, the explosions, all of that is very, uh, it's a big production. Because that's what you yeah. expect. That's what that's part of why you come to see Bond. Mm-hmm. But in the quieter moments and also the funny moments, those feel natural. And they also feel like they're a part of the same movie. It's not, there's not a disconnect between those styles. And so I think he really was able to understand what he knew what film he was making while still bringing a little bit of flavor to it. You know, we saw this in True Detective season one, and I've seen this in like the handful of scenes and trailers I saw for Beasts of No Nation, a movie Mm -hmm. I definitely want to watch, but I know is going to like, it's a lot. There's a lot rough in that movie that that it deals with. One of his hallmarks is that he does this masterful thing of making really beautiful film, even about like huge, big action, Mm -hmm. making you feel like you're in the middle of it. You yeah. never lose perspective. It's not like a born movie where you're like you're being tossed about like it's a roller coaster, but it's you feel like you're in the middle of this scene while also visually capturing everything that's going on about that scene. Mm-hmm. I think of something like the car chase in the forest. Yeah. When the cars are flipping and stuff and you're always locked on to bond mm-hmm. stuff flies in from outside the camera, but you're with him the whole time. Or running up the stairs and you're locked on him. He decides to keep it as a single steady cam on that that thing. He's choosing different camera styles and types of filming for each scene to give it that feel. Mm -hmm. He's like oscillating between different styles, sometimes really different kinds of styles of filming, but it never feels wrong. Hmm. You know, the Paloma Cuban scene feels like wild and actiony sequence and then i'm pretty sure you slam from there into really tense closed claustrophobic scene with blofeld yes and they're both dynamically different they're filmed extremely differently it is quite it is it is quite good you're absolutely right and it was like whatever shortcomings they had in the scripting process he knew exactly how he wanted to approach and film each scene Mm-hmm. And you can tell that very assured hand like he as a director, one of the greatest things he does is it's not so much that he's meticulous like a David Fincher as it is. It's just like I have a plan for what we're going to do here. Yeah. And sometimes it might be real loose and sometimes it might be real, real specific, but he does whatever makes the most sense in that scene. That's fascinating. It's a fascinating Bond movie to watch because not any other Bond movie really ever feels like that. Mm-hmm. 
it might help that he is the first ever American to direct a James Bond film. That is so surprising. Like it's surprising and yet not. But it's a big deal to put an American in sh- in at the helm of this. It's a British franchise. I know. So like putting an American in is touch and go. The closest we've ever gotten is Canada. <laughs> yeah. Like I say it's surprising and yet it's not. Like it's surprising cuz it's like you had 25 movies, but also it's a very British franchise. It's, yeah. Of course. Um, so white James Bond has to be a Brit. And the farthest we got from that was Australian. He does such a great job. I'm not mad at him at all. I <laughs> I, I want to see what else he's going to do. I mean, top marks for the directing. Sure. If everything was as good as the directing in this movie, it'd be an instant five-star classic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Visually, one of the reasons that it's it's so sumptuous and so good is it is the first Bond movie ever shot in IMAX. Okay. All of the previous films had been shot in typical 35 millimeter, and then they'd scaled it up for an IMAX screen. Sure. This time they shot it that way. They also filmed in 65 millimeter Panavision. Mm. The richness of the color and the light in this movie, there is something just a little bit different. Just a touch new about that that we don't see from the other Bond movies. It's moodier in the inappropriate way moodier in different ways in different scenes too Mm -hmm. like casino royale is very gray yeah it's very stark and gray Mm -hmm. skyfall is very almost oversaturated at times it's a little like a fever dream and quantum of solace is always bit like you know warm because it's deserty right Mm -hmm. this movie has different tones and different textures at different moments of the film Mm -hmm. (laughs) which are just like why hadn't anybody done this before? <laughs> Seriously. It's going to set a new bar visually for how they think Bond can look. Because I don't think anybody's ever taken the time to like color wise, scale wise, they went much, much bigger than they've ever gone before. And it really shows. The Faroe Islands, which are islands between Norway and Iceland, filled in for Safin's lair. However, that lair and its bay were predominantly created in sound stages and via CGI. The Faroe Islands website states that Kalsoy Island, which is the specific island where they were filming, is heavily animated as the only industry in the village is farming and there is no harbor. (laughs) (laughs) And a fun throwback to tie into their You Only Live Twice inspiration, Safin's lair was specifically modeled after Ken Adams' designs for Dr. No and you only live twice. They went back to the master himself, the production design of Ken Adam, a man who we have gushed over on this series. He's amazing. The biggest Pinewood creation, however, was the El Nido nightclub that was set in Cuba. Obviously, they couldn't film in Cuba, but that whole thing was a set. It was a set recreation. Wow and built off of some of the most well-known bars in Cuba. In fact, in our trivia, we'll talk a little bit about some of the inspirations for that. Now, who could have been better? Because Carrie Fukunaga was not the original director of this movie. Nope. Our original director was Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle's a pretty big deal himself. You might know him from movies like Trainspotting, Slumdog Millionaire, 127 Hours. Mm-hmm. He's a big deal and a Brit. Yeah. I don't think he would have been as good as Fukunaga. No, he, I say I like Danny Boyle, but I don't think I truly do. I like Danny Boyle movies. 
I don't necessarily like his directing. I think when he, it's his story, I like it. Like it's so hit or miss. I love Train Spotting. I love Twenty Eight Days Later. Mm-hmm. I love Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, but it's so hit or miss for me on him. And like, I think it worked out the way it was supposed to. He's a fascinating director because he's all about movement and you know swirling lights and crazy color and just mm-hmm. like you know kind of making you feel like your head's spinning. That's so just what he's really good at as a director. Mm-hmm. Bond requires precision. Like if nothing else, other than Die Another Day, which was just so bonkers. Yeah. Every director, even in some of the most boring movies that we've watched, that we were like. <laughs> There's still a level of precision and detail and care that every director brought to that project because they knew it required it. Mm -hmm. Danny Boyle, I don't feel like does that as a director. Like, I just don't think that's his strong suit. I agree. And I think Fukunaga is much better at that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was replaced by Fukunaga three months before principal photography. So they didn't actually get started with Danny Boyle. Mm hmm. Um, he left around August 2018 due to creative differences over the script. And because of the script issues, it was probably our producers, Broccoli Wilson and Daniel Craig, who decided that it was time to go ahead and cut ties. Mm-hmm. By all accounts, it was amicable. I think even Danny Boyle was just saying at the time, it just didn't work out. Yep. Like, I don't think anybody had any ill will. It's just they got into the script process and they had much different ideas and were too far apart on what they wanted to do. Yeah. That now leads us to a bunch of other who could have been betters. Because Carrie Fukunaga was one of many who were considered for directing this film. We have Jean-Marc Vallée, who directed Dallas Buyers Club and Wild. Okay. We have not seen either of those films. Denny Villeneuve. Yeah. I don't know if I like him for Bond. Depends on... It depends Depends on on the script. It really does. I don't think he would have been right for this story. I'm trying to think if there's a past one that he could have done. Any of those Timothy Dalton ones, Denny Villeneuve would have been fascinating. Oh, yeah. They would have looked better, too. <laughs> because it's those were potentially bringing that very John le Carre, darker spy story to them. You know which one Villeneuve should have done? Quantum of Solace. Yep. I was going to say that one, too. And not just because of the desert, but because environment is such a big part of that film particularly i mean the environments are always a big deal but that one there's so such big consequences well he does the same thing with blade runner 2049 and and even in his smaller movies he brings that too but that particular story oh yeah the bond story does the bond story does which is why he would have been so good at that atmosphere is his whole thing yeah atmosphere that's a better word for it than environment he like atmosphere is definitely his place and that one would have been also a moonraker because space (laughs) well of course he would have been much better in space or more under the sea bullshit we have Jan Demange, who did 71 and a movie we did not like, White Boy Rick. No, thank you. Bye-bye. I... Nope. Hey, visually, White Boy Rick was interesting. I barely remember that film. The script was god-awful. How about Edgar Wright? No. I love Edgar Wright. I, I do. I love him so much. But he is suited for MCU, not this. I mean, honestly, he's suited for his own movies. Let him make his own stuff. No, I, I think his Ant-Man would have been way better than the Ant-Man we got. I do too, but I'm going to be real honest. 
he is so much better when he's doing his own thing. Yeah. He just is. And finally, another man we've talked about a lot. Sure. Christopher McQuarrie. That sounds <laughs> like he's having an affair. <laughs> That's inappropriate. It's a little weird. That Unless sounds... Ethan Hunt's going to make an appearance. He, you know, if he was, he would have had him show up. I don't like it. I assume that one was pitched only on the strength of, well, he does know spy movies. Like, that's his bread and butter. Do we want to consider it? Mm-hmm. It's worth talking to him. <laughs> no, no. Let him do the Mission Impossibles. He's very good at them. And he's got a great relationship with Tom Cruise, which, you know, whatever. But they're they're good. They're good at that, you know? All right. Let's talk about our cast. And guess what? We don't have to do a whole lot of credits because we've talked about these people a fucking lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot. Yep. We start with Daniel Craig playing James Bond. I love him. For the last time ever. Mm. Is this the most heart we've ever gotten out of Bond? Yes. On purpose, of course. Sure, sure. He's written that way. I just, he's just so good. And like, there's there's the bittersweet aspect to it, and he knows it, and that's totally fine. But it's also, like, I like that Bond is old yeah. for Bond. I like that when we meet him, he's tired. He's just tired. Like, he's living it up in Jamaica. Like, he's doing his thing, but he's still James Bond. Yeah. But it's just kind of like, whatever, I'm tired. And, like, this isn't as easy as it used to be. Which just plays into him. Like, there's such a deep connection. Mm-hmm. I feel like this has to be part of Carrie Fukunaga having a good relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Of being like, you know, why don't you tap into that a little bit? Yeah. Like, you as an actor are already feeling this. Why don't you use that? You need to bring that to Bond. Because, because it's so good for this performance specifically. And I like that. I mean, this goes back to Storyways, but I like that really the only reason he's doing this is to protect the woman he loves and this child he just found out he has. Yeah. Because that's that's the way it is. Because he originally rebuffs Felix. He's like, I'm out of this game. This isn't my responsibility anymore. And Felix is just like, it never goes away. Yep. Like, sorry, dude. Like, you can say that all you want, but this is going to come to you. And I really love that because that's also true for Daniel Craig, he will always be James Bond. Sean Connery, who we just lost this last year, will always be James Bond. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's it's always going to be tied to him. The The good news is, you know, he can finally step away from the character in that perspective. Mm-hmm. I honestly hope he would stay on as a producer because he's been so good as a producer with the franchise. You know, I think if the, especially since his is so beloved, his Bond has been so beloved transformed the franchise it did it completely transformed what bond could be because his character was a fucking killer and they never did that before they tried with dalton but they weren't willing to go all in they did it with him and craig and i said this when we got to casino royale he's an attractive man he just is but he is not turn your head in the street gorgeous he's not He's gorgeous precisely because he's a killer. That's part of what his fierceness and then his the way he carries himself is what makes him bond in this film. And that is also a different thing. They've always cast conventionally, truly handsome gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And that is not Daniel Craig. He does not look like a guy who went to prep school. Uh-uh. He's James Bond. He, he's James Bond, which is a joke, but also perfect. And so like that's the life he brought to it. So 
I agree. I do really hope the Broccoli's realize that he has such a unique perspective and he has brought something to this franchise that nobody else has. So I hope they would consider keeping him on as an executive producer and also being someone to help bring in the new, whoever the successors are truly going to be. Yeah. And no other bond has really been so deeply willing to be involved in the crafting of the franchise as a whole i understand that that comes with like really developing this sort of arc and franchise that you're building off of this It, it wasn't just we're making the next movie and it's a spectacle but like he would be a great Michael G. Wilson. He doesn't need to be in charge in charge, but he needs to be there if he wants it. Yeah, if he wants it. And I could could honestly see him wanting to do that. He's really good. He brings, like I said, he just brings so much emotional depth to it Mm -hmm. this time around. I think that's what made me so emotional was that he brought so much to it. And then I was like, and then, you know, he died. And I was just like, there's no more. The death is so huge, but like I think the other one that so gets me is when Safan kidnaps the girl Mm -hmm. and he's having to sit there and you can see all over his face. Bond, if there was no connection to that girl, would have calculated the risks, figured out and found a way to take him out. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden he crumbles. Yep. Because he's like, no, you can't hurt her. You can't hurt this little girl. Like, no, she's mine. It's beautiful because we don't get that. Never like, seen that. Even in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Lazenby brought it a little bit, but we we talked about Lazenby's rough. Lazenby doesn't have that in his bag of tricks. We got to see it this time. Well, no, no, no. We've seen that before with him, with M, when she died. Yeah, we did. Because we know Bond is in love with Madeline. That's fine. He's loved a ton of women. M was mom. But M was mom. Yeah. Like that was the only woman he could not say no to Mm -hmm. that could twist him more than anything else and now it's not madeline it's his daughter Mm -hmm. and it's just like oh great it's i love it i love it's 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 just so well done yeah we love we love you daniel craig and we're gonna miss you so you have to stay on as a producer so we can just adore you from afar (laughs) so you can make funny quotes about james bond yeah but you don't actually have to do it you don't have to do all of the training and you don't have to get injured yeah, he he had to dramatically scale back his stunt work for this film because mm-hmm. of how many injuries he had. He, of course, got injured pretty significantly during this film. That was a huge reason for his decision to say, this will be my last film. <laughs> yeah, he had said in some interviews that it was also the influence of his wife because he's like, when I get injured, Rachel has to deal with it. Like, I'm useless. And that's totally fair. Like, that's a huge burden, not only on your actual body, but on whoever you're living with. And they have young children. There were sources who stated that Rachel Weiss couldn't see him in pain and agony anymore. Mm-hmm. None of those injuries have completely subsided because he's old enough where they will linger. Some of them will remain chronic. Some of them are just going to linger and last for longer than you would expect. Mm-hmm. And they reportedly came to an agreement that he would definitely cut back on his stunt work because of how many surgeries he's had to face because of playing the role. Mm-hmm. They were just like, you can't do as much as you used to, and you have to find a finishing point for this. Unless you're Tom Cruise. Who's well, like, yeah. fuck it, I don't care if I basically break my foot off my body. Having been involved with the role for 15 years, he will officially be the longest tenured Bond in the movie's history. Yep. Now, pandemic helped that a little bit. Sort of, yeah. Helped him beat Roger Moore. Just, just a little, but still. 
he is officially going to overtake Roger Moore for that role. Cool. Pretty cool. And five days prior to the premiere, Daniel Craig was made an honorary commander in the British Royal Navy, matching the rank of Bond in the novels and films. That's so cute. That was made possible because of how closely the filmmakers worked with the armed forces and the Ministry of Defense on the films. Mm -hmm. Daniel Craig is officially commander. He's Commander Bond. That's so cute. (laughs) That's very good. It is very good. All right. Then we have Lea Seydoux playing Madeline. Mm -hmm. We, of course, have talked about her before for Spectre. Yep. What do we think of Lea Seydoux in this film? She's good. I don't love her. Madeline's always been a little bit of a wet blanket, although at least in this movie, we got to see a little bit of why, a little more of why. A little bit more of why, and we we got to see her, like, recognize the stakes. So the only thing I don't like about her portrayal, because I do like Leah Sidhu. We loved her in The French Dispatch. Like, we, we know she's good. She's, she's very she's fabulous. Good. But my only issue with her here is that after we get through the awkwardness of like, oh, yeah, I had your baby and I didn't tell you, there is no joy. There is no element of joy telegraphed from her of like my child is now with her father like you would think that there'd be some element of peace relief that that secret is not being held anymore and that's never telegraphed in this film and i think that's more an acting choice than anything else and so that's why i'm like me i would think that's a writing choice more than anything no I think that's an acting choice because I I don't think you have to change any of the words, but it's about looking and reacting to things. We get a just a tiny hint of it before the whole like forest chase (sighs) when they're in the Range Rover. But even then, it's not enough. I mean, I agree with you. At that point, she's still lying to him about the fact that she says because she lies to him. Yeah. Yeah. She plays that character is just terrified constantly. So, which is fair. Yeah. And paranoid. There was no respite. There was no element of joy ever in her. And that's the only part that I don't like. Yeah. It's disappointing, especially because we know she's capable of playing different fun notes. Sure. So it's just like, mm, I wish you'd have brought that here too. Mm-hmm. My only note for her is that she admitted that despite the fact that she starred in the film, she did cry at the end of the film. No. Because it was so affecting. Mm-hmm. It was very sweet. All right. Let's talk about someone we haven't talked about for this franchise. That mm-hmm. is Rami Malek playing Lucifer Safin. Mm-hmm. Before this, Rami Malek was in Gilmore Girls, Night at the Museum, Night at the Museum, Battle of the Smithsonian, The Pacific on television, Larry Crown, Battleship, The Master, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 2, Ain't Them Body Saints, Short Term 12, Old Boy, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb, Mr. Robot on television, Papillon from 2017, Bohemian Rhapsody, and The Little Things. Coming soon, he will be in an untitled David O. Russell project. How is that man still making movies? I don't fucking know. What do we think of Rami Malek in this movie? Forgiving the script. He's great because he's creepy. Yeah. He's playing a different note than we've seen from him. Loved him in Bohemian Rhapsody. Loved him in Mr. Robot. This is a different lane. Even when he's been villainous mm-hmm. in something like Mr. Robot, sure. 
his whole thing has always been unhinged other than we talked about him in the master where he's really not a villain but he's just stone-faced this is very stoic calculated menace i mean like i said his best scene is when he kidnaps the little girl oh sure and you know there's there's makeup he's wearing some makeup but you could take all that away don't need it you don't need it. It doesn't. Yeah. And it does not change. It doesn't. There's there's been times we've been like the, the makeup's doing a lot of work for that person. And he's not do he's not wearing like a lot of heavy prosthetics or whatnot, but it's not doing anything for his performance. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just it's all him. Yeah, it's it, that's there for us as a story point. Sure. And something important for us to know about the character. Sure. His performance isn't dependent on it at all. You know, the other thing that gets me is is when they get to the garden and he takes the kid and he walks her through the garden while Madeline is chasing after them. And you're just like, oh, no, what are you going to do, man? Oh, it's so creepy. And he builds it throughout the movie like he gives he just ratchets it up little by little. You know, unfortunately, because of the writing, then he just sort of becomes a screaming mess at the end. Yeah. It's it just doesn't give him enough to work with, but he does absolutely everything perfectly. And if nothing else, he's just a very good classic Bond villain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I would love to see him do this more with better fleshed out characters. Yeah, because he could be a great villain. He shouldn't always be a villain because he's very good in, in other protagonist roles, too. But yeah, I don't ever want him to get typecast. <laughs> but like him as a villain is so fun. <laughs> oh, I love it. As we mentioned before, Seffen's mask is a Japanese no mask created mm-hmm. from blocks of Japanese cypress and painted with natural pigments. Of course, the similarity of no and no Japanese art form led many to believe Seffen would be the new version of Dr. No. It actually was originally a spiked mask. Think Hellraiser and Pinhead. And it was based on Siberian bear hunting armor. Mm, interesting. This was in a different iteration of the script. Safin would have also had a henchman that was eventually written out. I love a henchman. And they did mock up the spiked mask, but because it dominated so much of the costume and Fukunaga is much more. Less is more. The simplicity of things and using using the scenery. He opted to make it just a very flat no mask that was broken apart. And Rami had to wear a wig for this role because he was still shooting the final season of Mr. Robot, and he needed to keep his Elliot haircut. So, interesting stuff. All right, who could have been better? A relative unknown for us, Tomasz Kot. He is a Polish actor who appeared in the Oscar-nominated Cold War and is gaining some traction in bigger American roles. Mm -hmm. He was Danny Boyle's choice for the villain before parting from this film. Hard to say if he could have been better, but like like we've talked about, this character is not hampered by the acting. This character is hampered by the writing. Agreed. So Rami did fantastic with what he had. Mm-hmm. We have Lashana Lynch playing Nomi. Before this, she was in Fast Girls, Powder Room, Brotherhood, and Captain Marvel. Coming soon, she will be in The Woman King, a remake of Matilda and The Outside Room. Mm-hmm. She's doing lots and lots more. What do we think of Lashana Lynch in this movie? I like her. She's fabulous. I wish they would. We would have used her more. I'm not exactly sure how we accomplished that with this story. 
she should have been in every action sequence that we had up until the end of the film uh, in a more prominent role. Yeah. And I kind of wish she hadn't given the 007 moniker back to him. I understand why she did. Because here's the thing. That moment is a really great moment because she doesn't give it back to him because he wants it. She gives it back to him because he has shown that he fully respects her as 007, as an agent. He's not giving her any shit. It's just like, oh, all right. When he meets her. And that, so like, so he's he's fully shown her that respect. And so for her, it's like, Everyone around us knows him as 007. Let him have it. Yeah. Um, That's her way of showing him respect. She should have been like Henry Cavill in Mission Impossible, except with the whole villain turn part of it. Correct. From the moment you step in, you need to be directly involved in every part of that mission. Yes. And we need to see you directly involved in that mission every time. We need to see you be in charge of it and then let Bond be a little like... Another person telling me what to do, and I don't even work for you people. Like that, you could have gotten a little more silliness, which I always love when Daniel Craig gets silly as Bond. And I, I did really like everyone else's. Like, how do we deal with this? Like, mm-hmm. we've not had this problem before. Usually, they're dead, <laughs> like, which is true. Yeah. Um, and I, I would have really enjoyed some like Q accidentally saying that. <laughs> Yeah, it it just, we, we should have had more. I would have liked more for her. I don't know what the best way to accomplish that with this. She's fabulous because she's both lethal and sexy as hell. So that's what a Bond is supposed to be. That's what an agent in, in this world is supposed to be. And she did it very well. So props to her. Also a little bit like early Bond. Probably tougher than absolutely necessary. That's okay. You have to you have mm-hmm. to find and round those edges as as taking on a double O status. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Lynch had never seen any of the Bond films prior to getting this role. So once she was confirmed for it, she watched every single one beginning to mm-hmm. end as part of her preparation. She did the homework. Good for her. And her rectangular sunglasses are a nod to Grace Jones from A View to a Kill. Love it. The Jamaican connection, all of that. I When I saw that, I was like, oh, she's pulling Grace Jones vibes. And I love it. And I'm here for that. Perfect. She's the perfect person to do that in this franchise. Love it. Yep. Loves it. Then we must mention Rafe Fines as M in this movie, specifically because he has a prominent role in this mm-hmm, film. He does. What do we think of Rafe Fines in this? I really liked him. I liked having more of him. I liked... Having M be, because we forget that M usually has been in the field in some capacity. And so it's kind of like what we've enjoyed with Benji and Emma in the Mission Impossible series. It's like he started out here and then he progressed and moved here. So I liked that our boss person, who clearly has field experience, is now we actually get to see him be in the field. I also love that our boss has made a whole fucking mess of things. He recognizes, I I could have stopped this so long ago, and I didn't. This has to be a big part of the franchise going forward, mm-hmm. because, you know, not for nothing, but politically, people have turned on the CIA and MI6. Mm-hmm. People have learned about the history of these agencies and been like, hey, they're fucked up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what they do is not cool. And something that the franchise has to really reckon with. Yeah. And they they touch on pretty well in this movie is like 
you getting involved in all of this shit causes massive problems. Yeah. And that's got to be, that really has to be a feature of the franchise going forward. Like, it, it just does. Because politically, it's a huge reality of, like, mm-hmm. the people in charge of MI6 are sometimes just as culpable as our bad guys. And they really have to stick it to M mm-hmm. to get him to realize, hey, you're one of the biggest reasons this has gone the way it has so far. Yeah. And you have to step out of the way so we can fully fix it. It's a very cool turn that because it's Ray Fiennes, who's such a good actor, is able to really play so well. It's honestly a little touch of the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy type thing. Hmm, a little bit. That we don't often get in the Bond series because it's such a you know dashing secret agent man type stories mm-hmm. all the time. That for the first time, we're really bringing in those sort of real political realities. And doing it through M's kind of a perfect way to do it because he's in charge. Yeah. Race up to the job. He's really good. And uh, and getting to have him more is really fun. Let's also talk about somebody we do get some more of. That is Ben Wishaw as Q. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good in this movie. He deserves to be right up there with the original Q. Like he makes it fun. He's a little bit goofy. He's antagonistic with Bond. Like, you just break all of my really cool shit. This is why I hate you. But also, like, I want to be cool. I want to be friends. I'm cool. I want to be cool, too. I'm a part of the team. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, that's that's it. But also, like, can I also please have a personal life? <laughs> you leave me alone for five minutes. It's a matter of life and death. Ah, damn it. (laughs) And also, like, again, with the whole, like, they went so young. And I love it. It's perfect. And, like, they even commented on it. It was like, man. (laughs) Sadly, he has publicly stated this may be his final time playing Q. He has noted in interviews that he is only contracted for three movies. And he's very serious about wiping the slate clean for a new Bond. So that's May. He said May. (laughs) <laughs> Here's, so, so that's fine but you also know it's a very common thing to have a, the q or and or the m continue on with the new one yes so i i would guess that if approached he will say yes i would hope he would if the new bond and the broccolis and daniel craig who has to be a producer are all like hey this has been a tradition with past we would love to sign you on for you know, another three films to play our Q character. He could be convinced. Just throw throw a couple extra mil on the the pile. He'll do it. But along with that, I have seen some other public comments where he's been like, I really don't want to get put into a role that I have to commit to for that long a term. No, I, I, he wants to maintain artistic freedom and the ability to choose. I totally respect that. And I don't have a problem with that. Just on a personal, it's just, um, no, from a love of the franchise and the character and the version of the character he brought, I would love to see a little bit more of him as we pass the torch to a new bond. He's so good. And finally, in his third appearance, playing this character the most times in the franchise, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Wright playing Felix Leiter. They did him solid. They did him solid in this film. I like that they made him more punchy, more loose than we've seen Leiter before. Yeah. Not a care in the world, but that's because he's so fucking assured. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we've seen Leiter be very calculated, and this time he's like, no, we're the CIA. We fucking know everything. Mm-hmm. And then he gets screwed over by it. 
I kind of love that. Sure. I love that he's very American. Oh, sure. As opposed to the other times when he's been a little bit more of that like super underground spy. And he's just like, this is a slam dunk. It's an easy win for us. And mm-hmm. then it turns out he was not reading it right at all. <laughs> he does a great job. He's Jeffrey fucking right. I, he does. Know. I love him. I love him and everything. Oh, so good. Well, let's talk about some Arpons. Arpons, random people of note. Naomi Harris playing Moneypenny. Rory Kinnear playing Tanner. Love them. Adorable. <laughs> Billy Magnuson as Logan Ash. <laughs> what a weird, fun insert of a character. It, he is. So American. So good at the double cross. Very fun. Well, you bring him in here, you know he's going to be a double cross and bad guy. That or he's the guy who has to die in the first five minutes. He's a red shirt, essentially. Nah. So much more fun as a little cheeky villain. It's a little dick. I love him. Like that's mm-hmm. that's that's his bread and butter. I'm here for it. Christoph Waltz playing Blofeld. Fabulous. Blofeld's appearance was supposed to be a surprise until somebody spotted him at Pinewood during filming. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, as some passersby noticed him, he he told them, "You haven't seen me," and went into the studio because he's Christoph fucking Waltz. He's, so, he's like a cartoon character of himself. I love him so much. <laughs> With the secret out, then the creative team decided, okay, we're just going to put him in the promos because initially they were going to hide it. And then they went, well, fuck it. We might as well throw everybody off the scent by putting him in here. Sure. If they could have kept it secret, fine. But once the secret's out, there's no point. Market it. Use it. Who could have been better? Because Christoph Waltz stated that if Daniel Craig had not come back as Bond Mm. and they, you know, it was was always still up in the air, he would not return. Fair. And in 2017, he firmly stated, I won't be involved. Now, he might have been lying or it might have been true at the time. He was like, I'm not coming back. They also may have not have finalized the script enough for him to commit. Yeah, there's a whole lot going on. There. Sure. Who could have been better? Andy Circus. Oh, yes. Andy Circus as Blofeld. He can be the future Blofeld. I'm fine with that. Do it. Please. Love mm. it. He's so, I love Andy Circus. Fun. Also British. Anna. De Armas playing Paloma. My favorite edition. Favorite edition. Steals the whole fucking movie in five minutes. <laughs> she like she's in it for li- literally five minutes. Huh? And she's amazing. Kicks some fucking ass and is hot as hell. Love it. Our first ever Cuban Bond girl. Love it. Very fun. Was apparently handpicked by Daniel Craig to be in this film after working with her for Knives Out. I love that. That makes me, again, like, good job. Good on you, Daniel Craig, pulling in more ladies to this universe. And he went to Broccoli. He just went to Broccoli and Wilson was like, you need to put her in this movie. (laughs) Love it. You need to do it. She will be so much fun. (laughs) Well, and, you know, I, I like, he's also had been quoted saying, like, I think we've killed the Bond girl. Because that's not have been a thing in his films. There are women that he slept with, but like, especially in these last films, it's like, nah, the, the women in my world are kick ass. They're all kick ass, except, well, even Madeline. Madeline's pretty kick Madeline ass. Madeline kicks ass. She, Madeline just doesn't want to kick ass yeah, because she, she's traumatized. She doesn't want this life. Yeah. But yeah, that's, oh, it. she's so good. And apparently, Paloma's gown, which was designed by Michael Lasordo, was. Chosen specifically because it was elegant enough for a black tie event, but allowed her to fight without restriction. Yes, you can tell, like, you can tell the slits in the dress, like, oh, very sexy, but like, she needs to kick 
literally kick ass she can, which is fabulous costuming. And finally, as a military officer at the Spectre Party, Michael G. Wilson. Mm. He's always in it. He's always got a bit Somewhere. Part. I love it. It's a fun little thing. One who could have been better Arpon. Oh. Slated to make a cameo during the Jamaica sequences was Grace Jones. <gasps> Her character was supposed to return. That would have been cool. However, when Grace Jones found out it was a cameo and not an actual role for the film, she quit. That sounds like Grace Jones. <laughs> you still get paid, bitch. You know what? Good on you, Grace Jones. I get it. I get I'm it. Not, I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not mad. It would have been great to have her just like I had been really hoping to have a weird, funny scene with all the other Bonds or just have them passing by. But Grace Jones don't take no shit. <laughs> if you're going to put me in the movie, put me in the movie. If you're going to put me in the movie, my name's going to be on the fucking poster. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. like, I get it. Like, whatever. It's just that's so Grace. That's such a Grace Jones thing. It's so uh, funny. Wow. Power move there. All right. Let's quickly talk about our theme music because we have. Billie Eilish performing No Time to mm-hmm. Die. What do we think of this Bond theme? I'm not disappointed. I I was a lot more worried about this than I could have been. I was too, to be honest. And I specifically did not listen to it before mm-hmm. the film. And I like Billie Eilish, but I'm not like a super fan. Yeah, I understand. I think she gets treated really unfairly. Oh, absolutely. Just yeah. for being young and not, and she doesn't care. There's just so many eyes on her. Like even even positive coverage is like there's so much of it. My only thing about her when she arrived on the scene that I really just didn't like how I know it wasn't meant to be disrespectful, but it seemed like, oh, you don't know who these people are. No, I don't care. And it's just like when people tell you that you sound like somebody who's super famous or like, oh, you're pulling from this or that. You should be like, oh, no, I actually have never heard of them because I was born 30 years after their music. Like. Like it doesn't, it was so defensive. It came off as disrespectful. So that's the only thing that like, she's really bristled me when she first came out. But now I just think she's cool and her music's good. A perfectly talented singer. And she does, look, it's not the greatest Bond theme that we've ever heard, but it's just a solid Bond theme. Yeah, it's a theme. It's on par with like some of the more middle Sean Connery themes or something like that, where it's just very classic. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I don't hate. I don't hate for this movie, especially. It doesn't need to be anything super crazy. Nothing's going to beat something like Skyfall mm-hmm. or even uh, You Know My Name from Casino Royale, which was so perfect for that movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for this movie, I kind of love that it doesn't overshadow the movie. It really just sort of blends really nicely in, gives you that breather on the credit sequence, and then puts you right back into the movie because it's a long story mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're telling so i love that it's just kind of like it's just a chance for you to catch your breath it's got bond vibes and it's good it's solid yeah it sold ninety thousand copies and 10.6 million streams in one week it raced to number one on the uk pop charts the second it came out that beat both writings on the wall and skyfall yeah i believe that it was a massive, massive hit when it was released. And it won the Grammy for Best Song Written for Visual Media the first time that ever happened for a film that had not been released. That's pretty funny. Yep. 
a lot of trivia from this movie is going to go into like first time this ever did this first time this ever did this it was like well there's a pretty big reason why that happened i mean because the world kind of stopped for a while <laughs> all right we've done it we've gotten to trivia trivia and oh boy is there trivia mm-hmm. the italian car chases used 8,400 gallons of Coca-Cola poured on the ancient streets in Italy that cost about $77,000. Not for product placement, mind you. Okay. You might ask, why Coca-Cola? Why pour that on streets for car chases? Because Coke, when dried, acts as a liquid adhesive. Uh, okay, for better traction. Mm-hmm. During the motorcycle jump, the Coke provided grip so that the bike would not slide on the ramp. Mm-hmm. And that allowed them to do even trickier stunts, got much more grip on the wheel so that they could actually maintain all the different curves at those speeds. You're dealing with very narrow streets with very sharp turns. You've got to safely be able to do that and not, you know, break ancient buildings around you running mm-hmm. into them. It required a massive cleanup job after, but stunt coordinator Lee Morrison said that after having used it numerous times for films, it, quote, makes things look very clean after it washes off, unquote. Weird. Look, Coca-Cola will strip battery acid off the outside of your car. So, like, Coca-Cola will clean some shit. Ah, That's crazy. I know. I know. It's what you got to do. Tricks of the trade. Eight stunt replicas of the Aston Martin DB5 were designed and constructed for use in the film, and two actual DB5s were used for close-ups. If you want to spot the difference between those, the paint is uncommonly glossy and the grill chrome looks brand new on the stunt cars. Mm. If it looks a little too shiny, it's a stunt version. Mm. Because those are... 60s cars like they've aged and patinaed even if you clean them and make them immaculate they're still not going to be as shiny as something you constructed brand new Mm -hmm. two of those cars housed a mind dispenser and machine guns while two were controlled in drivers in a cage that sat on the roof while the actors were inside pretending to drive Per Daniel Craig, quote, it's great to have the DB5 again. It was returned to Bond Inspector and is now in perfect condition with a few added extras. I love it. (laughs) That's my favorite. It's the best. There are actually four Aston Martin vehicles featured in the film this time around. You, of course, Mm -hmm. have the DB5. You have the classic V8, the DBS Superleggera, and a new hypercar from Aston Martin, the Aston Martin Valhalla which is a fucking awesome car name. That car means business. That is the most metal car I've ever heard of. Other than adding safety rail cages for stunt safety, the Land Rover Defenders in this film had no additional modifications made to them. They are as designed from the factory floor. The vehicle line director for Land Rover said, quote, we developed a new test standard. The most challenging we've ever had and unique to this Mm -hmm. vehicle. Physical strength and durability is measured by a number of different tests, including a bridge jump test, which gave us confidence to deliver what the stunt team needed to create for the movie with no modifications to the body structure, Mm -hmm. unquote. They made a factory vehicle to the specifications needed for the movie. That's insane. And then I think are going to sell those. Yeah, no, there's a market for that for sure. 
here's the thing land rover as a car design is meant to be rugged and tough mm -hmm. now it's hell to repair them because like it's all out of britain but i know just like land rovers are one of the few vehicles that can appreciate after driving them off the lot because of how durable how tough and how highly regarded they are mm -hmm. <laughs> to do this with a car like that is wild but it's it's a crazy awesome marketing now i believe it's a limited edition of these specific styles that they're going to put out mm -hmm. um but they are looking at it going like hey we beefed up our standards one because we believe in our vehicle that much but two we wanted to show just how good we are at engineering these things i just thought that was the coolest thing i'd ever heard that's insanity but in the best way they've gotten to the point with product placement where the products are willing to like Maybe we could do this ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like that's the level of regard for Bond as a franchise. <laughs> mm -hmm. The plane sequence flying through shipping terminal cranes was a true test of flying prowess. Nothing like that had ever been attempted before. Mm -hmm. They had 1,000 containers mobilized with a dozen different people to arrange the stunt itself. Wow. Yeah. It was a massive undertaking. The explosions in the finale were designed to look like bunker buster bombs launched from a real warship. But to get that shot, they needed to use a specific technique. They had three different explosions for each underground cavern. Mm -hmm. Each approached the camera, the first from about 750 feet, the second from 425 feet, and the third just 100 feet away from the camera when we see them explode. Each of those explosions had 90 pounds of explosive material and used 30 to 40 gallons of fuel. Hmm. They tried to get it to look like an actual full on slightly less than nuclear warhead explosion. Yeah, they did it. What you would see out of a Navy warship. Bonkers. Bonkers shit. That's insane. I love it. The sinking trawler with lighter mm -hmm. was created by Chris Corbold the same designer of the sinking house in Casino Royale. Hmm. They actually filmed it in the same set that they used for the Venice sinking house. They rotated the ship rig at 90 degrees, so the engines and stairs would be visible. So they're filming it as though it's vertical, but they're all tilted at 90 degrees so that you could see all the different shit. Then they planned the rig, how to sink it. They built the rig to sink by putting water in and they injected a massive amount of compressed air so that instead of water, the actors would have to wade through the air. They were basically swimming through highly compressed air in the cabin. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they got the visual effect without any of the risk of, of drowning. That's cool. Yep, except for like the handful of sequences and different stuff sure. that they did. But you know, the the fact that they used compressed air to have them push through, I'm like, that's a wild but awesome way to do that. Yeah, and definitely safer. Guess what they tried to do again? They've done it a few times. What'd they do? They tried to blow up the 007 stage again. The, the Pinewood stage was <laughs> cursed. It caught on fire, didn't it? No, 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 no. During an explosion setup, three charges went off causing part of the roof of the stage to fall in and some wall panels to fall. Jesus Christ. <laughs> a crew member suffered minor injuries, but for the most part, it was just the set itself. I mean, I'm glad no one was hurt. Like, <laughs> they tried crazy. to do it again. They tried to blow up the 007 stage. They do this all the time. 
<sighs> Had the film premiered as planned in 2019, mm-hmm. it would have coincided with the 50th anniversary of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, a film it extensively references. They had the different target dates, and they they would have released it on the the same day, which would have been amazing. Yeah, and you know, wouldn't have wouldn't have screwed up our entire season. And let me tell you, let me tell you, the reason it got delayed that wasn't COVID that it got delayed. That was Daniel Craig getting hurt. Yep. Yup. Due to pandemic delays, there were some reshoots required because certain products who had signed up for product placement wanted their most up-to-date products. Oh, okay. That makes sense. During the interim, they had released new things, and they said, well, you can't have the old model in the film. We have to redo it. Mm-hmm. Oh, another little quirk here. That's interesting. That is funny. I hadn't thought of that. That makes sense. Prince Charles visited the set in June 2019, mm-hmm. the first time he had visited a Bond set since... The Living Daylights, which he visited with Princess Diana in 1986. Yep. If you are watching very carefully, when Bond uncovers the Aston Martin V8 in his garage, mm-hmm. the Union Jack Bulldog from Skyfall is sitting in the garage. I noticed that, <laughs> which I love. It's very cute. And of course, he kept good. that. Even though it was being used badly, it's still like, but it's, it's from mom. It has to be there. Like, you don't have to have it prominent, but it has to be there somewhere. Yeah, it's from mom. During the scene where Safen is holding Mathilde hostage, there is a moment where Craig is slightly mouthing Rami Malek's lines. Mm-hmm. This is a very typical actor trope. When you're so engrossed in a moment, you're reacting to the other person's lines. You begin to mouth those lines back. Mm-hmm. It is not clear why they left that take in, whether it was intentional or just something they missed when they edited. Mm-hmm. But it is there for you to see if you watch the scene carefully. Interesting. When Bond meets Logan Ash and says, quote, who's the blonde? It's a very veiled reference to his casting in 2005 being nicknamed mm-hmm. James, James Blonde. Blonde. Yep. So I noticed good. when that happened, I laughed. It was like, yeah. Who's the blonde? <laughs> Bond throws his visitor's badge into the trash can by Money Penny's desk from across the room when he's mad at M's office. This is a very subtle nod to Sean Connery throwing his hat onto the hat rack. Yep. The shot is very similar. I love it. We have, of course, said that despite the ending of the film, the credits do, in fact, state James Bond will return. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be very interesting how they decide to bring that. Mm-hmm. And finally, to really pull this way full circle, back in 1958, before Bond ever came out in theaters, Albert Broccoli produced a World War II film that was co-written by longtime Bond writer Richard Maybaum, who we've talked about a lot, and directed by early Bond helmer Terrence Young. He directed Dr. No from Russia with Love and Thunderball. Oh, Thunderball, okay. That film is typically known as Tank Force. When it was originally released in Britain, it had a different title. It was called No Time to Die. That's hilarious. And that leads us to our ratings. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it. It was such a good piece of trivia. Oh, that's an amazing piece of trivia. Uh, we did it. 25 movies. We pulled it full circle in a lot of different ways. 27 movies. Oh, my God. I, well, let's, let's not. Tw- 26. We don't want to talk about that other one. We still we watched 27 movies in the Bond film. I know. How How is the worst one of those? Like, the absolute worst. The longest one. I don't know. 
it sucks. Oh God! Why? Five directors. Five directors. Yeah. For every film, mm-hmm. and especially every Bond film, we have a specific rating. Mm-hmm. For this one, it's got to be the antidote vial. Mm. Oh, what a what a crushing moment when you're like, oh no, oh no, such a such a deep moment. How many vials are we gonna give this movie? I'm feeling four because of the issues I have with the villain. Your Bond villains really got to be good. So like that's disappointing. But overall, like this was so it was still a really satisfying ending to Daniel Craig's Bond. And we haven't gotten that with our other Bonds. And so that was really nice. And I feel like it really, truly sets up the franchise to feel fresh again with the next one like it did when Daniel Craig came on. And so I think that's wonderful. And I still really liked it. And I look forward to watching it again when I'm in the mood to be like, let's revisit all the Daniel Craig. So it's a four for me. I'm going to agree with that. Four. Like you say, a Bond Bond villain really is what can make a Bond movie great or mediocre. Mm -hmm. What's awesome about this movie is that despite having a pretty weak villain story, Mm -hmm. it still does enough to be a great bookend. And I think a lot of that has to do with Craig maybe gave one of his most nuanced and most emotional performances Mm -hmm. this whole time. It's a little uneven. It's a little rough around the edges. But I think what really gets it up that high is it feels really satisfying once it's all done. Yeah. Not only do I love that it sets it up for freshness, I love that it sets them up to go in whatever direction they decide they want to go in. Yeah. It's so open. And that leaves them the ability to tell any number of stories that they want to tell. It really makes it just a nice clean ending to you know you you want to just say the daniel craig legacy but it's honestly the entire bond legacy up till this point yeah it closes a circle well and i i really think that is about like putting the book and closing that circle for the broccolis not because they're not going to still be involved and they still won't own it but because the people who've been involved from the beginning i mean are still there as much as they can be and so now it's about like let's close the circle on what we've brought to it so it can be its own thing and then when we revitalize it it can we can pass the torch to someone else to continue it on in a different way all i'm gonna say is disney better keep their fucking grubby hands off of it well it belongs to amazon now so yeah that's fair which so it's just gonna be interesting it's gonna be weird what a ride (sighs) this like again, I was so surprised by how much fun this series was and how much it has meant to me because I wasn't expecting that. It's such a roller coaster of a franchise, I think. Mm-hmm. Like there's lots of franchises that either just sort of hit a mediocre standing point mm-hmm. or a little bit better than that. Something like a Mission Impossible where it's like, well, y'all hit a formula and now you're just kind of rolling with it, mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing. Or you got a franchise that just, you know, crashes and burns real quick and then they just keep churning out sequel after sequel because people will go see it yeah this is such a different thing and it's honestly it's gone through those ups and downs because it's a family franchise Mm -hmm. it's a very unique kind of franchise in everything we've seen it's not owned by a studio Mm -hmm. it's owned by a family and they have made really amazingly awesome decisions 
And then they've made really baffling decisions. Absolutely. <laughs> along the way. And then, you know, they've they've tried stuff that on paper should have worked and it just didn't. Something like the Dalton era, which is just like all the elements are there for this and you just didn't pull it off. There's so much to explore with all of this. And it's gone through so many different circles. And what's really crazy is that as it as it comes into its own now, it's going to be such a new universe for them. It's not like one of those where we can predict, oh, well, they're clearly going in this direction. It's like, we have no fucking clue what they're going to do now. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's kind of awesome. I know some people who are Bond purists are probably like, they've, they've had plenty of meltdowns over the past few months after seeing this. Sure. I don't know. The Bond franchise is at its best when it's backspin against the wall. Agreed. When they're forced to innovate and change and adapt. And I feel like the Craig franchise has been the best about evolving within itself. GoldenEye had to revitalize just monetarily a franchise. Sure. And they did a great job. They made really entertaining and like mm -hmm. fresh updated movies. But then they had terrible writing and they were like, we've done the thing where now we've got it back into a a money-making franchise it's a money-making franchise with good stories with a beloved character while updating it more for our times like it's not perfect by any means but it's come a long way <laughs> the craig era was very specifically about okay we have to actually like tell a good story yeah like we can't just coast on it being bond anymore well it's like the audiences are not we are not going to get new viewers we're not going to catch that young audience which we certainly were when those two movies started yeah uh, we are now part of the older audience which is like we are. <laughs> super fucking weird but also fair if we keep going with the he's just hot and he can sleep with whoever he wants trope like that's just not gonna that's not gonna sustain a younger audience and that's true um and so i think i think again this is the most it's had the best evolution within its own world in in the craig era as opposed to like sean connery is the same bond from the first one to his last one he just is so let's do this to close it out mm -hmm. got an idea okay if you can have one thing for the new bond franchise what would it be one thing you get one just absolute and and you know no cost considered blue sky whatever you want Okay, it has to do with the casting, so I want two things with the casting, okay? Oh, uh, mm, no, nope, I'm saying it. Mm, nope, I get it. Casting overall means you get two choices here. Okay, I'll allow it. It doesn't have to do with story. It has to do with casting. Okay, okay. I want young, and I want diverse. I don't want just a white British dude. Mm, okay. I think British is important for the character, but that doesn't necessarily mean he has to be a white dude. No. Um, it really doesn't. So that's that's what I want. And I want someone young who would like to be with the franchise for a while. Yeah. That's what I want with our, our new Bond person. I'm going to go with a story point, I think. Okay. You know, there there's some easy slam dunks here. Like, I would love Paloma to be lighter, right? But we said that. Yeah, that's that's an easy slam dunk. And it's it's something that they've clearly telegraphed. Sure. Same same with me wanting Winshaw as cute. That's yeah, what I want. or I just Nomi wanted... being a big part of the franchise going forward, stuff like Nomi that. Nomi being the new M. Nomi being the new M, or Money Penny being the new M, because oh, holy okay. shit, Naomi Harris's M would be awesome. That would be awesome. I love Naomi Harris. She's fabulous. However, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the story point, and it's it's something we brought up because of the Ray Fines thing. Mm -hmm. 
if this franchise is going to survive, especially in an era in which there's a lot more skepticism Mm -hmm. about what intelligence agencies Agencies do do and work with, I really want there to be a better focus on the political fallout. I would love some more storylines where the threat is coming from inside. Give me a Sean Bean reprise. Which we, we do have to give credit to. Mission Impossible has dealt with. Yes. And it's been interesting. Not always perfect, but interesting. You know, even even without that element of the threat being from inside the department, I need there to be a lot more of that political nature mm-hmm. and Bond having to fight against that system to do what's morally right. With maybe maybe less emphasis on, you know, guns and nanotechnology, but more about that that person to person stuff. I think that's going to be something that's a big thing for them because you know otherwise it's a big deal now and there's so many people who you know especially you hear british people and british young people talk about james bond and be like fuck that dude he's the worst if you look at him just as a on paper as a human who they would deal with in daily life is like he's the worst part of what britain means (laughs) as a signifier for culture oh that's fair so like how do you rethink that Mm-hmm. in an age to make James Bond somebody who seems like a hero instead of for a many great number of people seeming like a villain. Mm. I want them to reckon with that. It doesn't have to be perfect and it's still going to be an action movie and you can't, you know, really go that deep on it, but you've got to approach it at least. Mm. All right. Well, we did it. We did it. We finally got to talk about this Bond movie. <laughs> yeah. We finally got to watch the see the Bond film Wild. we were waiting on for so long. Wild. And of course, when a new Bond happens, we'll be talking about it too. So uh, whenever that is, we'll have to add it to this lovely series that we've had. Thank you to everybody who's just been so supportive of it. This is definitely our most popular uh, series we've done. Yeah. And to go out, instead of our normal theme song, Mm -hmm. I think I know what we need to play. The Mighty Thunderball. (laughs) Until next time, everybody, have Have a good good movie. movie. There's a rumble in the sky and all the world can hear it call. They shudder at the fury of the Mighty Thunderball. Thunderball. Now is drowned in the sea But the deadly force from within her is somewhere